All right, childhood memory time. You guys remember when you were little kids and you'd be downstairs and you'd hear the parental voice from upstairs always saying, don't make me come down there, right? You, only, you finish it, right? You heard that, right? Don't make me come down there. And what that means is straighten up, chill out, no more roughhousing, keep it down, or Lord have mercy, I'm coming down there and the whoopings will begin. The whoopings will commence. And so what we do as kids, you remember, we dial it back a bit, but just a bit, right? Like we, we'd flirt with the edge of that line, shh, they'll hear us. Right? We'd try to keep it down, and eventually we'd cross that line. And we'd hear those fateful steps on the stairs, right? Uh-oh, here it comes. And in that moment, we'd have a choice, right? You remember, like you have to choose, am I going to play innocent and blame my brother or run for my life? Like, you know, those are the options. And what does this have to do with church? Well, we are basically rebellious children down here and, and messing up this world. So some churches have picked up on this. Like, look at this sign. Now, side note, some have asked me, hey, as we build the new worship center and extended parking, are we going to get one of those signs out front that we can change the text on? Hex, no. Not on my watch, you'll have to fire, you'll have to kill me because I'll still take the sign out with my truck. <laughs> so, not going to happen because the implications of this sign is that God is saying, listen, you'd better straighten up, you'd better work harder, act better, or else I'm going to come down there and the whoopings will commence. And we actually triggered that event. We screwed it up so bad that God had to come down here. But he came down not to punish us, but to take our well-deserved punishment unto himself. That's the story of the cross, that Jesus Christ is dying in my place as my death penalty. That was yours. That's the Easter story. Well, actually, that's only part of the Easter story. That's only Good Friday. We're here on Sunday. This is Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. And I want to focus on that part of the story today. So we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 24 to begin with. Let's start out in the beginning there at verse 1. These are, it starts out talking about some of the female disciples, some of the women. So on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. Wait, the twelve? No, remember Judas betrayed, so it's down to eleven, right? So they tell them to the eleven and to all the rest. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Okay, so... They didn't expect the resurrection. They were surprised. The women were taking spices to put on a dead body. They don't expect the Lord to be risen. They expect a, a corpse. And then they find out he's risen. They go and tell the apostles and the other disciples, and they did not believe them. Not at first. Do you believe them? 
Should you believe them? I mean, you understand, that is like the most important question is this. It all hangs on the resurrection. Did the resurrection happen? A few months back, we've been going through Luke as a congregation. A few months back, we talked about the transfiguration. If you remember that, I called it a glimpse of glory. And then after that, remember, Jesus comes down a mountain and he heals a boy. Now, as you read the account, it sounds like the boy had symptoms of epilepsy. Jesus said he had a demon. Now, liberal scholars today will say, no, 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 it was just epilepsy. But Jesus ha- said he had a demon. So now you've got to decide who you're going to trust, Jesus or liberal scholars. And I told you to believe Jesus because that boy raised, r- rose from the dead, right? Like I said, if a liberal modern scholar will rise from the dead, I will believe him, I will believe her. Until that point, the save money's on Jesus because he rose from the dead. Now, nobody said to me at the time, but you ought to have said, Pastor Rick, (laughs) it sounds like you're basing your entire argument on the fact that Jesus rose. Yeah, I am. (laughs) But pastor, that means that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's all garbage. And if he did rise from the dead, you're going to believe whatever he said. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. That puts a whole lot of weight on one historic event, the resurrection. It's all about that. It all hangs on that. In fact, James Martin points this out. Let me read you this quote from him. He said, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you can go on living your life. If you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, however, everything changes. In that case, you cannot set aside any of his teachings. Because a person who rises from the grave, who demonstrates his power over death, and who has definitely proven his divine authority, needs to be listened to. What that person says demands a response. In short, the resurrection makes a claim on you. See, Jesus rose, and this changes everything. Unless, of course, he didn't rise. So which is it? Like, Paul even admits to this quandary in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That's where we'll spend most of our time this morning. Let's start out actually in verse 3. This is 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 and he says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. A little later in the chapter he says, and, and here's the admission, ready? And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Toward the end of the chapter, he said, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Did the resurrection happen or not? See, Christianity 
is not about good advice or good teaching or a good example. Christianity is about an historic event, the resurrection. It's either fact or fiction. It either happened or it didn't. And if it didn't happen, Paul says, let's go eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. It's all garbage, right? See, Christianity is either absolute truth or absolute garbage. Make your choice. Christianity is either worth your whole life or nothing. There's no in-between, despite the fact that many of us live that way. All true or all false. So the question is, all-important question, is it true? So Paul gave us evidence for that in the first part of that passage. Let's look back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll notice up there, he refers to a guy named Cephas. Now that's another name for Peter, okay? So that's Peter the Apostle. What we know about Peter is in Matthew 16, when Jesus first predicted to him his death and resurrection, Peter said, no way. He said, quote, this shall never happen to you. That got him called Satan. It wasn't a great interaction with Jesus, but, but there it is. So he said, that'll never happen. And then after Jesus was arrested, you remember, Peter's the one that denied him three times. He's beaten and defeated and scared and on the run. And then a little bit later, they can't shut Peter up about Jesus. He denied him. Now, now he's like this huge mega apostle for Jesus testifying to Christ. What happened? He met the risen Lord. That's what Paul says. He met Jesus risen. And then not only Peter, but it goes on to say the 12. At this point, Judas has been replaced with Matthias, so there's now 12 again. So all the 12, including Doubting Thomas, remember him? I'm not going to believe about this resurrection stuff unless I can see the wounds in his hands and put my hand in the wound in his side. I won't believe it. And all the 12, they were with Peter. They were running. They were timid. They were scattered. But then, then they end up bold and courageous champions for the gospel, even despite the fact they were imprisoned, tortured, and martyred. Why? What changed? How'd that happen? Paul says they met the risen Lord. Not only the 12, but then he, then he jumps the number to 500. You see that? He appeared to more than 500 brothers. That's a big family. That's like a Catholic homeschooling family. It's like a really big family, right? Yeah, obviously it doesn't mean that. It means 500 disciples of Christ. Now at first, those 500 disciples, they too are hiding in fear. They thought Jesus was the Messiah. Evidently we were wrong. Because Messiahs don't die. See, there had been lots of false Messiahs who had come and gone. I'm the Messiah, gets killed, it's all over, and now we're done. Now, that's Jesus. He was killed and it's all over. I guess we were wrong. They're defeated. They're down in the mouth. Then suddenly, suddenly, this ragtag band of timid followers, these misfits, all of a sudden they are radically changed from the inside out, and it's, that's the crowd that was used by God to take the story viral, that it went, not only it changed the empire, it changed the world, it changed history. How did that change happen? They met the risen Lord. So Paul says, by the way, do you imagine for a second you're a lawyer and you have a court case to prove and the only thing you have to work with is 500 eyewitnesses? It's pretty much a slam dunk. Paul even says most of whom are still alive. Now that's really important. Let me explain why. 
Paul is saying they're alive, you can go look them up. See, that means not enough time has passed for this to develop as a legend or a myth. Some of you think the, the resurrection is a fairy tale. Not enough time has passed. And let me give you the timeline. So scholars are split. Did Jesus die in 30 or 33 AD? It's somewhere in there. Paul is writing this bit of scripture in 54 AD. It's about 20 years, about two decades in between right there. That's it. That's why most of them are still alive. So let's think about something that happened about 20 years ago, roughly, in our culture. Y2K. Do you guys remember Y2K? Most of you were still alive, right? And the deal with Y2K was that our computers were set up with only two digits in the date code for the year. The last two. So the fear was as we rolled into the new millennium that the computers wouldn't know that it's year 2000. They'd think it's year 1000 and everything would shut down. Well, no, only the things that were run by computers, which was everything, right? So, so there'd be no electricity, no water, no gas. All your financial records, poof, none of your personal computers, nothing would work. And it would, it would trigger Armageddon. And it would just be catastrophe. And so what happened, we woke up on New Year's Day 2000, and you remember, right? Everything was fine, except the preppers. They were really sad. <laughs> they had worked so hard, and it was just the biggest bust ever. Now, I want you to imagine something. What if I fabricate a story that actually Y2K was Armageddon? It ushered us into a dystopian reality, okay? And like, the, the preppers were okay, but the rest of us were fighting with each other over provisions. It was like the walking dead without the zombies, right? That's what happened two decades ago. Could I get away with making that up? It hasn't been long enough ago. Most of you were there. You would correct me. My story would never take root. It would never work. Now, I could make up a story about the Civil War, and you would have no idea. But not about Y2K. It's only been 20 years. See, that's what Paul's saying. There were 500 eyewitnesses. Most of them are still alive. It's too short a time to make something up. And then, after the 500, he goes on to talk about James. This one's kind of funny. James, this James, is the brother of Jesus, like biological half-brother of Jesus. They grew up together. Let me ask you a question. What would have to happen for you to believe that your brother is the son of God? <laughs> Not happening right? Didn't happen for James either. You know what James and his family thought? They thought Jesus was bat crap crazy. Out to lunch. Like really, you read the gospels, they went to take possession of Jesus because they thought Jesus was possessed. I mean, he's out there bringing shame on the family, saying things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What if your sibling said that? That guy's crazy. Let's go get him. But, but then all of a sudden, later in the story, you know, James is a leader in the Christian church. He writes James in your New Testament. That begins by saying James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What would have to happen for you to call your sibling Lord? And then James would be stoned to death for his belief in the deity of Jesus. How did that happen? He saw the risen Lord. The last bit of evidence Paul gives us is himself. Remember, Paul started out as Saul, the chief 
persecutor of the church, the one kind of hired by the Jewish authorities to be the ringleader, rounding up Christians, having them imprisoned, beaten, and killed. That's who Paul was. Then all of a sudden he switches teams, becomes like this premier missionary, this missionary stud, and writes a good bit of the books in our New Testament. How did that happen? Paul said he met the risen Lord. You see, this is just a mountain of evidence. And you've got to say, how do I explain that? It demands a response. Now, some would say, well, maybe they all lied. Maybe they made it up. They lied about it. But wait a minute, what motivation did they have? You understand, they didn't get wealth. They didn't get status. They didn't get glory. They didn't get power. You know what they got? Get ridicule, beaten, imprisoned, stoned, boiled in oil, shot with arrows, run through with sword and spear. They also got fed to the lions, and some were crucified. That's what they got for their lie. And yet, of that huge crowd, not one of them broke and recanted. What do you do with that? Say, well, pastor, many die for a lie. Like Muslim terrorists. They believe it to be true, and they die for it, but it's a lie. Yeah, but they believe it to be true. That's the point. The, this crowd right here, they would have known that they didn't see the risen Jesus. And they would be intentionally dying for a lie for no gain. All 500, no one recants. Doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't happen. Because of this, the British apologist and theologian Michael Green said this. He said, you could imprison them, flog them, kill them but you could not make them deny their conviction that on the third day he rose again. So how do you know if something happened in history 2,000 years ago? Well, you can go with recorded eyewitness testimony from that time, people who had no motivation to lie, and none of them broke. They just got tortured for it. Or... You can go with plan B, that is some liberal scholar 2,000 years after the fact who says, oh, there's no way that could happen. Huh. Make your choice. Now what I've been doing is giving you apologetics, rational defenses for why we believe the resurrection is true. I could go on and on with the alternative theories and why they're silly. I already did that in a sermon on November 19th of 2017. You can look it up on our website and enjoy that if you want. If you want to delve into this more, you can go to our Welcome Center, pick up a little book called More Than a Carpenter. We'll give it to you for free. Enjoy that. But I'm, I'm going to pause there. Some of you, though, are probably thinking, you know what? I know what he's doing. I see what Pastor Rick's up to. He's doing a lot of apologetics because of the creasters. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the term, it's probably because it's about you. <laughs> <laughs> So what it means, it refers to people who only go to church twice a year, Christmas and Easter, they get called creasters. Now you're going, they have a label for us? We didn't make it up, okay? I think other churches use it like 50 weeks a year. You're just not there and you don't hear it, right? So anyway, so creasters, no. So the idea is that I'm doing apologetics for those who don't come to church very often, and that's not why I'm doing it. Let me tell you why, Chris, Chris, uh, excuse me, why Easter is such a big crowd. Uh, it's because our regular attenders aren't regular. Okay? The, the average regular attender goes to church about two times, maybe three times a month. He knows. 
We went to a big church, so we wouldn't recognize that. I know. So, but what happens then is all those irregular, regular attenders, everybody shows up on Easter. That's why Easter is such a big crowd. And yes, then also there are the creasters. Now, if you are a creaster, let me talk to you for a second. I want you to know that I am really glad you are here. You are loved. You are where you belong. Please keep coming. You are welcome here no matter how often you attend. Really love having you here. But I also want to be honest with you. Jesus didn't die and rise so that you could go to church twice a year. When I say it like that, it sounds silly, right? That's not, he wants so much more for you than that. But I'll be honest. If you go to church just twice a year, you are probably not in a life-changing, life-saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And I could dig into that more, but let's be honest between us, it's not your first time to darken the door of a church. You go twice a year, you've probably heard the gospel before, but you've assumed that you, you've kind of resolved that you are content with what the world has to offer, albeit with a Christian sprinkle on top. And so I'm not going to assume that the Easter crowd is a bunch of non-Christians who have never heard the gospel before. I don't buy the mantra that Easter is a huge outreach. So then why in the heck did I just do a bunch of apologetics? It's not for the Christers. It's for our regular attenders. Our regular, con- for you guys. I want you to know that this stuff is really true. Like when our culture is ridiculing you for your faith, I want you to have confidence. This is true. There's no doubt about it. It's not some emotional crutch. It's truth. You see, the resurrection is the receipt for our faith. You know what a receipt is, right? It's your proof of purchase that you bought something like you can prove it. Now, sometimes when you buy something, you don't actually need a receipt. So for that, I'll go to the theologian Mitch Hedberg. Watch this. Pay a receipt for a donut. I'll just give you the money. You give me the donut. <laughs> and the transaction. <laughs> we don't need to bring ink and paper into this. <laughs> I, <laughs> I just cannot imagine a scenario where I'd have to prove that I bought a donut. <laughs> Some skeptical friend, don't even act like I didn't get that donut. I got the documentation right here. <laughs> oh wait, it's back home in the five, under D, for donut. <laughs> we all know what D is. All right, uh, yeah, that, that proves there are some things for which you just don't need a receipt. A donut is probably one of them. But, but wait a minute, what about the purchase of your soul? What about the one event, the cross, that divides history, that changed the world, that purchased our eternity, the, the very center of our faith? I want a receipt for that. I want a proof of purchase. And that's what the resurrection is. You see, the fact that Jesus Christ of Nazareth lived, was crucified and buried... That is undisputed. Non-believing historians agree with that. Everyone knows that. But what did his crucifixion mean? We say it means one thing. The non-believing world says it means another. It means he just got defeated. We said, no, he conquered, which is true. 
The resurrection is the receipt. It is the proof of purchase for the cross. He's not just a false Messiah, dead and defeated. He's the risen Lord. What I'm saying is this, that 2,000 years ago, Jesus really rose from the dead, and that changed everything. What he said is true. Who he said he is, that's true. What he, his view of the Old Testament, true. His view of life, morality, and God, true. That he purchased eternity for us at the cross, true. That he's coming back for us, also true. And the resurrection is the receipt. But now, so what? What does this have to do with our lives today? Here's what I want you to hear. The resurrection was not only true 2,000 years ago, it's, it's true in our lives today. Christians, what I'm saying is that this is not only Jesus' story, this is our story that I'm talking about today. And we should be reflecting the resurrection in our newness of life. That's a a phrase I get from Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. In Romans 6, Paul says that you Christians, when you are baptized in Christ, you are baptized into his death, you are baptized into his burial, and you were baptized into his resurrection, that you were raised with him to walk in newness of life. That should be true. Many of us live like the Easter story stopped back on Good Friday. Grateful for the payment of sin, Lord, see us someday in heaven. We've forgotten the resurrection, that we were raised to newness of life. Resurrection life starts not later, it starts now. So you've got to make a choice. What kind of life do you want? Do you want a life of meaning and purpose and vision? A life where you know your worth and your identity is an adopted child of God. That you are solid. Do you want a new life, a free life? A resurrected life. Not a perfect life. Oh, we're a mess. But, but we live humble and transparent and open and growing and we're asking God, would you use us in your kingdom to serve and bless others? That's option number one. Option two is the death that the world offers us. Now, dressed up, like putting put makeup on a dead body on a corpse so it looks nice in the casket, okay, but still there's death underneath. And so it's sin and brokenness and shame and striving and pretending and hiding. That's the second option. And it makes me so sad that many of you will base your life on things that do not matter and will not last and they will pass away. We as disciples of Christ are not supposed to look like the world. We are supposed to be countercultural. We're supposed to live a resurrected life. Not a legalistic religion, but a resurrected life. By the way, how do you do that? Well, it's based on a relationship with God, not a religion. You know, you were made, you were created with one thing beaten in your heart, you, a craving for a relationship with God. Whether you know it or not, that is your basic need. You need Him in you, changing you, loving you. But here's the deal. You can't connect with a dead Jesus, only with a risen one. Like, a dead Jesus is all you need for religion. For relationship, you need a risen Jesus. That's how we live a resurrected life. And this changes everything. Most of us live and act day in, day out, like Jesus is still dead, not risen. 
And Easter is not just about his crucifixion. It's about his resurrection. But it's not just about his resurrection. It's also about our resurrection. That we didn't just escape death. That's the cross. But now he's called us to newness of life. That's the resurrection. And it reminds me of my favorite worship jam lately. It's a song called Glorious Day. Look at these lyrics. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb, not Christ. It was my tomb till I met you. I was breathing, but not alive. You feel that? Breathing, but not alive. All my failures I was trying to hide. It was my tomb till I met you. And then what happened? You called my name, and I ran out of that grave. Out of the darkness into your glorious day, you called my name, and I ran out of that grave. That's why we shout that line. It's my resurrection, too, and it's yours as well. In a moment, we'll sing that, but first, stand with me. I want to pray for us. Oh, great, glorious God. We thank you not only for the cross, we thank you for the resurrection, for the proof of our faith that we can know it is true. Oh, but Lord God, we don't want it to just be some dated, dusty fact on a shelf that speaks about history 2,000 years ago. It's true for us, it's true for today, it's our resurrection in Christ. And we pray that you would lead us right now, that we would shout and sing about that glorious day. And we ran out of that grave and then we would live that this week, that our lives would be different with newness of life, resurrected life. And for that we pray in Christ's name. Amen.